This morning we'll take a look at Esther chapter 2, and it's in your bulletin on page 8 there before you. And I'll read these first 11 verses, but just so you know, we'll cover more than that as it continues on through chapter 2, this story. And as we saw last week, as we began this uh, mysterious and odd book here at the the trailing end of your Old Testaments, we saw that the book of Esther is here for us in order to make one big point, and that is this. Throughout all of history, God fulfills His covenant promises through His most holy, wise, and powerful governing and preserving all His creatures and all their actions. You can boil it down to one word, providence. God fulfills His covenant promises to His people by way of His providence. Even if He seems silent, even if we assume that He's absent, the fingerprints of His providence are everywhere, Esther shows us. So you young Christians, you young disciples, as you listen along to this part of the story here in chapter 2, you're going to notice, I hope, that Esther keeps a secret See if you can notice what that secret is and think about maybe why she keeps that secret. This is Esther 2, beginning in verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let beauty treatments be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, And he quickly provided her with her beauty treatments and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray again that you would be at work in us because we know you're at work through your word. We pray that you would make it real to us, uh, clarify it in our minds and our hearts so that we can see the fingerprints of your working in this story and the fingerprints of your working in our own lives as well. 
and do this, that our faith might increase, that we might glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Born to the King of England during the the years of the Protestant Reformation some 500 years ago, and navigating some complicated sibling rivalries with savvy, Elizabeth I went on to become one of the most powerful monarchs to hold the British throne. Born to a Russian czar and educated by private tutors, Peter the Great was inevitably positioned early on to become one of the most powerful leaders in Russian history. Born to a prominent New York family and educated in the most elite schools in New England of his day, Franklin Delano Roosevelt seemed destined to become, from the very beginning of his life, one of the most powerful presidents that the United States has ever known. Very often, very often, people with power have it because they started in a place of privilege. But sometimes, sometimes, power lands in the hands of the most unlikely characters. Abraham Lincoln was born to a a farmer on the frontier of America and would later become one of the most history-setting and influential presidents that this country has ever known. Margaret Thatcher was the daughter of a shopkeeper, literally growing up in the grocery store that her parents owned and would become one of the most popular prime ministers of England, and Nelson Mandela, three decades in prison because of the color of his skin before stepping onto the world stage as a reconciler and a healer. And then there's Esther, this young, pretty Jewish orphan, just a little girl, a teenage girl, when the gears of God's providence came spinning to stop at her front door, and she would soon be the queen of the most powerful empire of her day because God had a promise to keep. He had promised Abram. We mentioned it last week and and recalled how God had promised to Abram ages before Esther ever arrived on the scene. God had promised to Abram, I will make of you a great nation so that you will be a blessing and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was God's covenant promise to heal his people, to heal all the peoples of earth, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and every nation of this world throughout all of history. By grace, God had promised this, and by providence, he would preserve the family of the Redeemer who would bring it to pass, and he would do it with an unlikely rise to power. Hadassah was her name. That was actually her name, Hadassah. That was her Hebrew name we have read here in this passage. We know her better by the name of Esther. She was just a young Jewish girl, a a teenage girl. Who knows exactly how old she was, 18, 19 years old, perhaps, maybe younger at this time whose rise to power 
reveals some important gospel truths in this mysterious story because she rose to power despite the evil of worldly manipulation. The king had thrown a party. Remember last week, King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, you might say his name, King Xerxes, he's better known, had thrown a party for 180 days. Six months of banquets, of feasting, of of parading his wealth before his people, and not just any people, the powerful people of his provinces, and even the military of Persia and Medea. The king had thrown this party to show his pomp and glory. The food abounded. The wine didn't stop flowing for six months. And then on the last day of the banquet, the king tried to top it all off by calling his beautiful, lovely-to-look-at wife, Queen Esther, in to the banquet hall to parade her in front of a thousand drunken men. And Vashti refused. And when Vashti refused, there was a cultural crisis because the queen doesn't refuse the, queen's, the king's request, but she did. And so the king consulted with his advisors, you'll remember perhaps, and they came up with a decree. Two parts. Number one, Vashti would never appear before the king again. She would be relegated, relegated to the back of the king's harem as a simple concubine for the rest of her life. And number two, every man in all the provinces of the empire should rule his household and women must respect the men and honor every request that they make. Now, at this point then, the king had no queen and so his attendants make a proposal. As we just read, they suggest the king should just gather beautiful virgins. Let us do that for the king from all across the empire and bring them in and will fill the harem here in the palace, and the king can take his pick. It's kind of a, a, an, an ancient reality show. Persia's got talent, right? He's gathering all the talented young ladies in the kingdom to see who's the most talented, only this one is not a family show. Esther is not a family sort of oriented book, all that happens behind the scenes here and even on the stage. It's a, a Persia's got talent show gathering the most talented the most beautiful and it's setting the stage for manipulation isn't it i mean persia's ways are so strange as an ancient empire to us aren't they men have money and women who have looks and they all get what they want does that sound familiar I mean, it sounds a lot like our own culture. It's just similar to today. The world really hasn't changed at all since those days. The world teaches men to manipulate the people around them with their status, their position, their wealth. If you have those things, then you can get what you want. But if you don't have those things, then you just get relegated to the back of the line like a concubine at the end of the harem. The world teaches women as well to manipulate those around them by using their beauty and their sex appeal. And if you have those things, you can get what you want. But if you don't have those things, then you simply get relegated to the back of the line. This is how the world teaches us to manipulate our circumstances. And it shows to us in Esther's story a gospel truth. 
as Christians, we live between two worlds. Esther's name was not Esther. It was Hadassah. First and foremost, she was Hadassah. She was a Hebrew girl. She had Hebrew roots. She had a Hebrew identity in her family going back generations, evidently. But she's given a new name, Esther. And some suggest that this name, Esther, being a derivative of the Persian word for star was a nickname that was given to the Persian queen because the queen was the star of the empire, the most beautiful, the most talented, as it were, one to serve the king. And so she was renamed Star, Esther. She lives between two worlds. And that's a complicated thing for followers of God. How is a follower of God to live in a world that so contrasts with their own, with the one in which they're supposed to live. It's really very complex. It's a complex problem for us today, as it was for Esther in her day. I mean, what are Christians to do when their fellow countrymen propose and nominate for them potential leaders for their country who are so deeply problematic for them? One of them displaying reasons for deep distrust and the other displaying reasons for deep disrespect. And there seems in the eyes of many followers of God that there's just not a good option. Does that sound sort of familiar? Esther faced situations in which there was just not a good option for her. You live in between two worlds if you're a follower of God. And the way of this world works like this. Your fate is decided by those who are most successful at manipulating the powerful. The king, Xerxes, gets manipulated in the story. Maybe you've noticed the subtleties of what's going on in this story already, how Xerxes gets played by his advisors. And the writer of the book is, I think, writing it in such a way so that we'll see these things. Xerxes gets manipulated by the savvy ones. In chapter 1, they turned his desire for glory and honor into a decree demanding respect for men in the empire. Now, you got to recognize, there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek irony, humor even, on the part of the writer in telling us this story, that the king had to decree that the women respect the men. You can't demand respect by virtue of a decree. Everybody knows that, but the king got played by his advisors. They also played him in chapter 2 here, as we've just read. They turned his desire for women, which he was known for, by the way, into a plan through which a God he did not know would carry out a promise of which he was unaware. King Xerxes is no true king. Because the true king, actually, as we said together in our confession of sin earlier, the true king turns the hearts of kings and of everyone like the channels of water. That New Testament reading that we heard earlier this morning gives us a good picture of that, how the apostle Peter is preaching to the The men of Israel at Pentecost, he's explaining to them what's taken place 
in these days before, and he explained that Jesus was handed over to them, a man attested by God before them. This man was handed over to them by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And, he says, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death on a cross. The world manipulates in order to accomplish its desires. People freely choosing everything that they freely choose to do. And yet, at the same time, God accomplishes all that he has planned. Your fate, the gospel truth would tell you, is not decided by the manipulators. It is not even in a world where complex decisions abound. It's not decided by the manipulators because your true king, God, is at work to make good on his promise. These worldly manipulations are ultimately no threat then since this young Jewish girl rises to power because of the certainty of covenant obligation. Because of the certainty of covenant obligation. God remembers what he's promised to his people. Okay, you get a a hint of it in this story of Esther as it begins. The story is not a parable. Okay, it's, it's a historical story that's written to us in some very poetic sorts of ways. The writer tells it in such a way that the people play some roles that we should notice. King Xerxes, of course, is the sovereign of the land. He is not God, but he sure thinks he is. And in verse 1, we catch a hint. After these things, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided... He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. After these things. Okay, remember last week I told you that there is between chapter 1 and chapter 2 a period of about about three years or so in which the king had gone off to war with Greece. And so you might wonder, how is it now that he's just remembering? Well, it's three years later and the king is now remembering Vashti. I think the writer of Esther is giving us a hint at some other biblical language that we find in other places. In Exodus chapter 2, the people of Israel are in Egypt. They're in slavery. They've been there for years and years and years. And their cry goes up and the writer tells us God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it's not that God had forgotten. God doesn't forget. The writer wants us to feel the weight and the significance of God having remembered his people. They came up before him and he saw them and he attended to them. Psalm 106 gives us a similar picture. It recounts Israel wandering in the wilderness years later and God heard their cry and the psalmist says, for their sake he remembered his covenant and in love he attended to his people, because God is obligated to his people. Ever since that promise to Abram, God has been obligated to his people. And while Xerxes here in the beginning of chapter 2 begins to build his harem, verse 5, there was a Jew in Susa whose name was Mordecai. He was a descendant of those who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives. The writer is affiliating, associating Mordecai, this man with a Persian name, with his Hebrew roots. 
Mordecai is of those, descended from those, who were carried away from Jerusalem among the captives. Mordecai has a heritage. And not only that, but he's a son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Remember last week we mentioned that that means probably that he was a descendant of King Saul. And that's going to play into the drama a little bit later on as we move into the story. Mordecai may have a Persian name and a Persian upbringing even, but he has a Hebrew affiliation. There's an obligation here. And the king, with a capital K, has remembered his obligation, and his obligation cannot be repealed. So there's another little bit of irony here in Esther. It's kind of subtle at different points along the way. Uh, the, the king's orders, he, he places at a couple of different times throughout the story. We've already seen a couple of them. The king establishes by his advisor's manipulative suggestions, he establishes royal orders to, to go out and demand the women respect the men, to go out and kill the Jews. Royal orders, which the writer tells us were orders which could not be repealed. Now, ancient records, commentators suggest, as they study these sorts of, of historical details from the ancient world, ancient records don't indicate that this was a habit of these Persian kings placing orders, edicts, out there that could not be repealed by anyone. That, that wasn't, it seems, their habit. But the writer is establishing that, in a sense, to ironically mock by humor this king and his supposed edicts and orders that could not be repealed. There's only one king who can establish an order that cannot be repealed. Only God's covenant obligation cannot be repealed. It can, it can be counted on no matter what. And, and how does it come to fruition? How does God bring about this promise? He does it through the affiliation of his people. He does it through his church. Now, we've gathered these past couple of Friday nights together, our fall new members class. Some of you who were here this morning were there at, at my house this past Friday, at John's house the Friday before, and we've talked through some of the elements of, of what this church is all about and what the broader church at large is about, the gospel itself and our, and our um, holding to a confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the theology of God's covenant and theology of worship and ministry and so on. And we talked about the church. And that confession, the Westminster Confession, makes a very striking statement about the church. And it is this. The church is the house and family of God outside of which there is no ordinary possibility for salvation. Did you hear that? The church is the house and family of God, outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, American Christians don't like that statement. Because it sounds kind of controlling, doesn't it? It sounds, it sounds like top-down power. You've got to come join our club, or you're never getting in to the big club. That's kind of how it feels to us in some way or another. But I will tell you, the confession is right. Because the church is the institution through which God has designed to fulfill His promise. 
And he's been doing that ever since he made that promise to Abraham to gather his family together, to build his family into a worldwide family that transcends cultures and nations and tongues. It is his church. And the gospel truth is this. God may seem silent. He may even at times seem to be absent from the work of his church as we gather together for worship on Sundays or gather during the weeks in different sorts of ways as we have fellowship together. Even in a sacrament like baptism, sometimes it feels like God is silent and absent. But the reality is he's at work all along through the ordinary means of his church. And it's not just because of his obligation to it. This young Jewish girl rises to power also because of a gracious attraction that God has for his church. Remember, again, Esther is not a parable, um, but the characters do play some roles here. And King Xerxes is on the hunt for a bride, right? He's looking for a bride. He needs a queen, and that's what he's after here. He's got a harem, but he wants a queen. And so he goes about this advice from his counselors to find a queen. And he is, you must recognize, using these women. There is no grace in the process of this king finding a queen. He's gathered hundreds, some suggest maybe a thousand young women, into his harem in Susa. What an outrageous thing. I mean, that just doesn't even register with us, I hope, nowadays, that someone would do such a thing. But this king has gathered hundreds, hundreds of young women into his harem in Susa, and they each have a turn to try out. Now, this is the part that's not for families. It's just not family-friendly. And the writer tells us that when the turn would come for a young woman to go into the king for her night with the king, she could take whatever she wanted to enhance her performance of Persian idol for the king. And Esther, we have to realize, is not exactly the perfect, perfectly godly princess here. You know, these, these women would go into the, the king and they had a few options of what would happen. They might just get, get rejected by the king and they would be sent back to the back of the line of the harem and that's where they would reside for the rest of their lives because no one gets the king's leftovers, to be blunt. That might be their option or it might be that they would be pleasing enough to the king that occasionally he would call on them over the course of the rest of their years or they might be the one. They might be the one that the king decides to love and call his queen. And Esther is rising in the ranks. She is not the perfectly godly princess here. She's moving up the ranks by complying with every request that's made of her. And the writer tells us, when the turn came for Esther to go into the king, she asked for nothing but what Haggai advised. She was wise in the ways of the world. She knew that this, this eunuch, Haggai, who attended to the women for the king, would know exactly what she ought to do, and that's what she took. Whatever it was, she did what he advised, and the king, as a result, was attracted to Esther, and he loved her more than any of the women, and so he set the royal crown on her head, and he made her queen. 
You know, along with all these other women, Esther had for 12 months been enduring beauty treatments of some type and a special diet, perfumes and cosmetics, whatever sorts of things that might make her to be spectacular and irresistible to this king. Why? Because the world has a standard for what's attractive. Esther's world had a standard for what's attractive, and it's really not any different than our world's standard for what's attractive. Some people have good looks. Some people have intelligence. Some people have skills that are unique. Some people have a family pedigree that gains them a hearing. You know, if you think about it, you're always building a resume. We all are constantly undergoing beauty treatments by the world so that we can measure up, so that we might be the one who is chosen. And if you're not pleasing to the king, if you're not pleasing to the world and its standards, then you're rejected, just like a concubine being sent sent back to the back of the harem's line. You know, kids grow up in our world with this sort of pressure. They, They feel the requirements of the world forcing them to take on a certain sort of attractiveness so that the world will accept, accept them. And, and Christians often are of a mind to want to say and find some, some um, example of, uh, of a person in Scripture that, that we can just follow and do like they did. And, and we often want to say something like, well, just do like Esther did, and God blessed her. But what had Esther done? She had done everything she'd been told except for what Scripture had told her to do. Did you notice this? She had neglected the Torah. She had neglected God's word and what it had told all Jews to do. She had, first of all, hidden her Jewishness as Mordecai, her cousin, had insisted that she do, and she obeyed him, but she kept it a secret. She ignored the dietary laws that were required of Jews. Now think about the prophet Daniel who just some decades before Esther came around had been taken captive into Babylon, and the Babylonians insisted that Daniel and his friends take on the beauty treatments of the court, so to speak. And what did Daniel and his friends do? They resisted. They said, no, we're not. We can't eat that food. And they offered an alternative. Esther didn't do that, did she? She also gave herself to a man who was not her husband. So think of Joseph in Egypt, years and years before, Joseph who was tempted by Potiphar, the ruler's wife, who wanted to cheat on her husband with Joseph, and Joseph refused even at his own risk and was thrown into prison for years and years because of it. Esther didn't refuse in that way. She even married this Gentile pagan man. Now think of Ezra. Another Old Testament character who comes just shortly after Esther, who goes home to Jerusalem to help to rebuild the city and finds that the Jews are marrying people who are not followers of Yahweh. And Ezra objects to that. He exhorts them and tells them, you must not do that. What would Ezra have to say to Esther? Esther is not an example to follow. Isn't that odd? Isn't it strange? At this point in her life, at least, she's not an example to follow. In fact, commentators even suggest that she lost out on both sides of the aisle. 
You know, if you think about it, those who push traditional values are upset with Esther because of these things that I just described. She gave herself to a man who wasn't her husband. She married a man she should not have married. She ignored the dietary laws. The traditional values people say, no, she's the anti-Daniel. She's the anti-Joseph. She's not our hero. But guess what? The progressive values people don't like her either. Do you know why? Because she didn't resist the man. Vashti is their hero because she refused to come and display herself before the people. The king called on her in an unjust fashion and she said no at great expense to her own life. Esther didn't do that. Esther lost out on both sides of the aisle. She wasn't the perfect princess, but what could she do? I mean, life in two worlds is very, very complex. And that's something that we as Christians need to recognize. The things that stand before us are not always black and white. Often it's much more complicated than that. And then we begin to get confused and wonder, how do I do God's will? How do I do what God is calling me to do? Because none of these options look good. And I just don't quite know what to do. But the gospel truth is that in his providence, God made use of Esther's decisions because his sovereign rule is not derailed by our, derailed by our erratic confusion. And... His gracious attraction is not undone by our unworthy souls because God's attraction to His beloved is not based on their merit. It's based on His merit. Esther becomes a bride here towards the end of chapter 2. She becomes this king's bride and King Xerxes gives her a banquet. It's called Esther's Banquet. The king is so pleased with her, he gives her a banquet to celebrate her becoming queen. And the the king calls a holiday throughout the empire, and he even makes tax cuts throughout the empire because of Esther and his pleasure in her. Imagine a king making tax cuts because of such a thing. There will be a greater banquet than that one for you, the church, because your greater king is keeping his covenant promise to call you to himself. King Xerxes loved Esther. Think about it. He loved Esther because she was beautiful and she was pleasing to him. But at the greater banquet, you are loved because Christ is beautiful. King Xerxes raised Esther to power here in his time and in his place because he gained something from it. But God after wicked men put him to death, nailing him to the cross, God raised Jesus to power so that you might gain something from it. Life in his name by faith. Why would he do that? Why would God do that? Because through all of history, by his providence, God keeps his promise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, we give you thanks and praise for your faithfulness to your word, that you have throughout all ages kept your covenant promise to your people. You have loved us despite ourselves, 
and you have called us to belong to you throughout the ages, displaying your great patience and kindness towards your people, remembering your covenant and coming to our aid by the righteousness of Jesus. For these things we give you thanks and praise and pray that your name would be glorified by all that we are and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.